Okay, here we go. The Interface, yes. Interfaces, that's the name of this series. Isn't that a cool name? This, that's what this series is about. It's about how we interface with one another, and sometimes that involves technology. And I, I just love this series so much. Uh, I just love the art, the retrofuturism in the art, and it's just so fun. And uh, my instantiation of this series is called Bad Robots, and I will explain that as the hour unfolds. Um, my name is Dan Kent. Uh, what's your name? No, wait. No, that's not going to work. That's not, we don't have enough time for that. Sorry. Uh, please join me in prayer as I pray for, the, pray for this message, if you would. Heavenly Father, bless us as we come together to worship you and to seek you and to become ever closer to the people that you want us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I need this series probably more than you do. <laughs> Out of all of the, the pastors who have been speaking in this series... I am probably the most addicted to social media of all of them. I, I, in particular, uh, Twitter is my drug of choice. I, I am on Twitter more than I should be. And, um, but I love it. I have so much fun on Twitter. And Is anybody here on Twitter? There's a few. Yeah, Trump. Someone said Trump is on Twitter. Yeah, we all know Trump is on Twitter. <laughs> uh, but I tell you what, I have met some really great friends on Twitter. And I never would have met them had it not been for Twitter. I can drive from here to anywhere in the United States, and I've got a couch I can sleep on <laughs> because of Twitter. And that's such a great blessing. Uh, and I consider them close friends even, some of them. Um, they might not think that of me, <laughs> but, you know, that's a different story. Uh, but also, Twitter is a lot of fun. I, you know, it, it's... There's you know celebrities on Twitter, of course. They have millions of followers, and these are the hotshots that we're all, like Trump and Elon Musk and stuff like that, you know. Uh, and I'm not like that. I'm just a small fry on Twitter. Uh, but the hotshots, what they do is they do these Q and A's, where their followers can send them questions, and then they will answer. And, and that's really fun because then you can engage some of these celebrities. And I've done that with, you know, different musicians and different movie stars. And it's, it's super fun when they answer my question, you know. Uh, I don't have that type of following, but I still want to play that type of game. So what I do is I do what's called an A and Q, where people send me the answers and I provide them the appropriate question. See, it's a little, little different. Um, uh, and so, for instance, that might be a little abstract. Here's a question that, that uh, Barbara sent me. The answer is maroon. Maroon. The question, of course, obviously, is what is a castaway's favorite color? All right, let's try one more. Owen sent in my dog. My dog is the answer. The question, obviously, is what does a dyslexic person worship? Now, obviously, dyslexia is a lot more than that. This is like a dumbed-down version of that. And I was going to take this out, but I've got a couple of dyslexic friends who said, no, it's funny, leave it in. So um, I, I, I don't know if, if you guys thought that was funny enough. Maybe I will take it out in the future. Uh, <laughs> but the problem is, is if I take all of my bad jokes out, I won't have any jokes. That's the problem, see. Uh, so I tell you, when this series, when I say that social media is good, I really mean that because I have so much fun on social media and I've had so many good things happen because of social media. Uh, but at the same time, I'm also aware that social media is really bad and boy, it really does contribute to the divisiveness of our country. And even in Christian circles, 
I mean, you would think Christian Twitter or Christian Facebook would be a reservoir of goodness and politeness, but no, it's not. It's not. You look at people who disagree about theological issues on Twitter or Facebook, they get mean. You know, they really do. And sometimes you can say something, and if you say the wrong thing, you've got a whole tribe of people who will just pounce on you and just humiliate you and ridicule you. And man, it could just be so cruel and so ungodly and so unchristlike. Uh, and so that's the rub. You know, social media, it can be so good, but man, it can be so bad also. And uh, Greg started this series off talking about the principle of proportionality, this idea that the potential for something to be good is roughly the potential for it to be bad. And boy, that's so true with social media and technology. And we see that all over the place. And sometimes we lose sight of the proportionality. Sometimes we lose sight of the badness and the goodness. Uh, Sometimes we just focus on one. I mean, just even little things like... I'm going to Rosedale Mall, okay? I'm going to the mall, I parked my car, I'm approaching the building, okay? And I'm getting ready to open the door. (laughs) I gotta grab that door, okay, what do I have to do? I have to open the door. So I'm getting ready to open the door and then the door is open automatically. They knew I was coming and they just opened for me. I I don't even have to do this at all. It just opens automatically. And I gotta get up to the second floor, so I'm getting ready. I'm gonna climb the stairs to the second floor, but... These stairs, I don't have to climb. I just have to stand on them, and they just bring me up to where I want to go. And it's kind of fun. And I'm there. I don't have to do any of this. I don't have to do any of this. And you know what? That's really great because there's a lot of my friends who have certain disabilities, and they can't do some of these things. And because they can't do some of these things, there's a lot of places they can't go, and that sucks. And because of this type of technology, they can go to those places, and that's great. Um, but for the rest of us, man, these types of technologies, they're really great, but they, they kind of sneak up on us. We have so many of these technologies that take away these types of things. And look how sedentary we've become, you know? We've become so sedentary where we don't really do much. We just, we're orbs that just kind of float around and everything just works for us. And, and we get so sedentary, but that's okay. That's okay because... There are places with technology to compensate for that sedentariness. You, there is. You can pay 100 bucks a month and you can go to Lifetime Fitness and they have machines there to compensate for our sedentary lives. What do these machines do? <laughs> the very things that we've automated out of our lives. Now, instead of just doing these while we're living, we have to take our free time, pay 100 bucks a month to do these things. It's... We don't even recognize that ridiculousness. Isn't that weird? It's just, that's the principle of proportionality. And it's not just technology in this physical way. It's more abstract than that, too. I noticed this, uh, you know, like when I was younger, I would go to friends' houses or family members' houses. We'd have little family get-togethers or whatever. And those were so fun. And we would tell stories. We would play games. We would talk. We would laugh. And sometimes things would get a little dull. There'd be a lull in the conversation or whatever, and the host would disappear into another room. And they would come back with this box full of pictures, you know, or a photo album. And they would start showing you the pictures. And if I could be honest with you, (laughs) that was sort of toil. (laughs) I don't know any of these people, you know? Uh, And the Appalachian Mountains, 
they look much better in person than in this little silly picture, you know. But I would look at the pictures, oh yeah, that's very nice, that's great, you know, because I love this person and I like hanging out with them. And this is sort of like a little tax sometimes that you have to pay uh, to just hang out with, with people, you know. And some of the pictures are really good, you know, and some of them are really fun. And sometimes I do know the people. Um, but now, because of social media, that's all we get are the pictures. We don't ever hang out anymore. We just get the picture. So now we're paying the tax and we're not getting the benefit. It's, it's sad. Um, and I love the pictures on social media, by the way. I think we need to see more kittens, more puppies, and more baby pictures. As many as you got, send them my way. But let's also hang out, too. That's what I'm saying. We should also remember to hang out in person. That's why I love it that everybody comes here to church. This is a place where we can actually be together. Real people. It's great. It's awesome. So that, well, thanks. So that is what I want to look at in in today's sermon. And that's what this series looks at. It's not just about the pros and cons of social media. It's really more about how social media and technology changes us. It's what it does to our personhoods and our lives and how we live. And that's where it becomes dangerous. Technology, it can make us sedentary. Social media, it can make us inert zombies, you know, where we're just walking in these trances. Dave talked about the zone that these things get us in a couple weeks ago. I taught as an adjunct at Bethel a lot of classes from 1996 to 2000, oh, I'm sorry, 1999 to 2006. Taught a ton of classes at Bethel. And I remember having to come in, and I would come into class to start the class, and all of the kids would just be yabbering to each other, and they'd be throwing paper at each other, and they'd be talking, and I would have to go in and I'd have to go, hey, all right, we got to start. Pay attention. Eyes up here, please. We got to get going. And then finally, it would kind of simmer down, and then we could start class. From 2006 until just last fall, I didn't teach. So last fall, I taught an intro to psych class. And I had to do the same thing. I had to come in and say, okay, we got to get going. we got to get started. But it wasn't because they were talking to each other. They weren't, it was silent. It was like a Zen mausoleum in there. I, mean, I don't know what that would be, a Zen mausoleum. But it was quiet, all right? <laughs> Anyway, uh, so I had to like, okay, we've got to get going, we've got to get, get started, because they were all looking at their phones, and they were all lost in that trance, and I had to get them to stop looking at their phones so we could start. It's, it changes us. People are different who are growing up now, and maybe they're different in good ways. I'm sure there's a lot of good ways that they're different, but there's probably some bad ways that they're different as well. And uh, those are the types of things that we want to look at. We want to look at, because God breathed into us. You know, he breathed into us this special life. We are sacred spirits in the world. And the fear is that we can slowly become soft robots. Just these soft robots. And that's the danger. And that's a real danger. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans. He says, I do not do what I want to do, but the evil that I do not want to do, that's what I do. He says, look, this is what I want to do, and that's what I don't want to do. Okay, simple decision, then do that. Okay, right, except I keep doing this. (laughs) Why do I keep doing this? I don't want to do that. I've become a soft robot. I'm operating under somebody else's code. Somebody else has control of me. Something else is telling me to do something that I don't want to do. I have lost control over my machine. That is... The danger, we don't even know that it's happening. Um, how do we know if this has happened? How do we know if we've, come, we've become this soft robot? Jesus gives us a, a simple test. Here's a test to know if this has happened to you. This is from John 8, 34. Whoever commits a sin, that's me and probably most of us in here, 
Whoever commits a sin is a slave to sin. They're a soft robot. Because do you want to sin? Well, no, you don't want to sin. Do you sin? Yeah, I sin. Well, wait a minute. I thought you said you didn't want to do that. You're doing the very thing that you don't want to do. You've lost control over your machine. Whoever commits a sin is a slave to sin. They are a dysfunctional robot. Um, It's kind of like something has grabbed our wrists and is slapping us on the face. Why do you keep hitting yourself? Why do you keep hitting yourself? Why would you do that? You don't want to do that, do you? Why are you doing that? That's what it's like. We just, we, we do what we don't want to do. Uh, did anybody's uncles do that to you when you were young? I'm still a little traumatized by that, obviously. Uh, so this series is not just about the pros and cons of, of technology. It's really about cultivating a spiritual posture that's effective to handling the dangers of technology and social media. It's, it's about fighting against the forces that want to make us sin cyborgs. Sin cyborgs. Isn't that cool? Thanks, Steve. Thanks. Sin cyborgs. And there are many forces that do this. There are many forces that contribute to making us sin cyborgs. This is what spiritual warfare is about, is just fighting against these forces. And as soon as you combat one and defeat it, nine more appear. I mean, there really are just all sorts of traps and devices that get us trapped. And and that's why it's a lifetime of spiritual warfare that we are uh, enduring as we live. I want to look at three things in today's sermon. These are three kind of strands that can cause us to be automated in ways that we don't want to be. And then I have three tactics to fight against these things. Does that sound good? All right. The first one is this. We are automated selves. You know, we talk about like being in the world of machines and technology, but really we are a machine. (laughs) There is no computer, there is no machine like us. We perform more functions and we process more data than any machine that's ever been made. And we do it cooler and more fuel efficient than anything else that's been made. All of the technology in the world, as cool as smartphones are and as cool as computers are, they pale in comparison with the technological marvel of our machines that we have. Um, God breathed into us a spirit into a very amazing uh, biochemical, biomechanical machine. Uh, In fact, this machine performs more functions and processes more data than we even know about. Because consciously, we can only be aware of about seven to nine things at a time. And you can tell this, like for instance, if I were to say to you right now, can you feel the pressure of the chair on your buttocks? You would adjust your attention and you would say, yeah, I can feel that. Now you probably weren't thinking of that a minute ago, but your body and your brain was still processing that information. It was still processing that even though you weren't aware of it. If I were to say to you, hey, how dry is your tongue? You would say, gosh, my tongue is kind of dry. I could use some water. That's what I I said this in the first service and I was like dry from singing and I really wanted some water. But so you can assess your tongue to see how, how much moisture you have on your tongue. Your brain is processing that information even when you're not aware of it. So what happens is your brain will kind of poke your attention if it needs to. If maybe it'll say, hey, uh, tongue's a little dry, maybe a glass of water would be good, and then you'll become aware of it. Or, uh, hey, cheek, the left cheek is a little sore, maybe lean the other way for a little bit, you know, and then you adjust. But you, your body just does all that stuff, and it'll tell you if it needs anything from you, but don't worry about it, it'll take care of anything. It's just an amazing machine that we have. Um, th- think of it this way. 
Think of how automated we are as people. Like if I want to go over there, I just say, I'm going to go over there, and I start walking. I don't have to say, oh, I want to go over there. Okay, I'm going to pick up my left foot, and then I'm going to extend it, and then I'm going to put it down. Okay, and that means I have to pick up my right one and extend it. See, if I had to think about all that stuff, how I couldn't really do anything else, but because of the marvelous nature of our machine, I can just automate that system. That system, and I have to learn it at the beginning. When I was a kid, I had to learn it. But once I learned it, it just becomes automatic. And this automation gets very robust. Um, if you drive a car, you've probably experienced this. Coming home from the cabin or coming home from uh, the baseball game, and you're driving home, maybe you're thinking of the baseball game, man, this team is so good. I wish, I wish our pitching was better. I feel a little nervous about, oh my gosh, I'm home. <laughs> Have you ever had that experience where all of a sudden there's your garage door? You don't remember exiting off of the freeway. You don't remember turning onto your road. Just all of a sudden you're there. Your body just kind of processed all that information while you were thinking about the depleted pitching staff of the twins. Isn't, isn't that amazing? It is scary. We need pitching. Um, oh, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. The automation is scary. That's, yeah, you're right, 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 right. Okay, yeah, yeah. What? Uh, Hey, listen, things can get into this automation process, though. Like, I, I, uh, I used to stand, you know, like this, you know, and I had to go see a specialist because I had knee problem. And the specialist said, well, you're always leaning on your left knee. Of course it's sore. Try mixing it up a little bit. Maybe lean on this knee for a while, you know? And I never, like, sat down and said, you know what? From this day forth, I am going to lean on my left knee. It just sort of became part of my automation system. And I had knee problems, probably from playing basketball, but it was exacerbated by how I stood. And the specialist was like, well, just try you know, leaning the other way every once in a while. And I thought, well, that's silly. That's not going to help. But like literally 36 hours later, it was better. <laughs> that's just by changing that automation process, my knee got better. Things can pop in there. When I was a kid in high school, my job was to do the dishes after school. And so I would get home at like 3, 3.30, and uh, my mom would get home at like 5, 5.30, and I'd get home and do the dishes, and at some point I realized, I figured it out, that my mom didn't really care if the dishes were done when she got home, as long as I was doing the dishes when she got home. That was okay, too. And so I took that into consideration, and when I got home, I would turn on Scooby-Doo, and I would watch cartoons, and uh, as soon as the garage door clicked on, I would turn the TV off, chuck the remote, run upstairs and start doing dishes. Oh yeah, just doing dishes here. Hi mom, yeah, it was a good day at school, all right, great. Seven years later, fast forward, okay? I'm with my roommates in college and we're, we share this townhouse. I'm watching cartoons between classes. Randy comes home and opens the garage door. <laughs> I click the TV off, chuck the remote, and I'm like, I don't have to do any di- What am I doing? I don't think I did a single dish the whole time I was in college. You know? I don't have to do... Di- this is another story, of course. It's, that's also scary. Um, but see how that just kind of crept into my automation system? That happens. And not just physically, either. It happens to our personalities and to our characters. Um, I worked in ECT. Uh, ECT is a, a, a type of treatment that is given where people are, are induced seizure. They, we induce a seizure into them. So it's basically shock treatment is what it's, it's called. 
And when that happens, the person is very disoriented when they come out of that. And their short-term and long-term memory is just all really fuzzy. They have no idea why they're there. They have no idea what they're doing there. They're kind of groggy. And, and it's like this kind of reset. And uh, what I would do, my job was, once they kind of woke up, I would take them in the wheelchair and I would take them through the hospital up to their unit and so that they could sleep because they need a lot of rest after an ECT treatment. It was just just marvelous. I mean, just like unbelievably captivating how automatic these personalities can become. But people, I would take them into ECT three times a week for several weeks in a row. And so the same people I would bring back to their units and they would say and do the exact same things at the exact same times to the exact same stimulus. And they would say it as if it was like this fresh thing. So this one guy, I would take back to the unit, we'd pass the cafeteria where they're baking things for lunch. And he would stop in the same way, look up, lean his head and say, mmm, donuts, in that exact same way. And he thought that this is like the first time he's ever done it. But it got to the point where I could predict it and I could mouth it right when he does it. Because I could see his head go up and I'd say, mmm, donuts, just like this. Because I knew he was going to say that. Isn't that weird? And that's how automatic we can become, even on the level of personality, which raises a lot of questions about free will. And this, friends, <laughs> is a rabbit trail I would love to go down, but I can't. I can't go down that rabbit trail right now. The danger here, of course, is that sin and destructive things can get filtered into our automating process. We can automate sin. I can go, if I'm with certain family members and we're out in public, I know exactly who each family member is going to say something judgmental about. Isn't that weird? This person is going to judge people who are overweight. This person is going to judge somebody that they perceive as lazy. This person is going to judge somebody that they perceive as a slob. It's just predictable. That's how automatic it is for them. Judgmentalism has become part of their operating system. They do not even know why they're doing it. They just do it and they feel like they have to. And that's the real danger. Lust is the same way. Uh, when you deal with people, myself included, when I was a kid, when I was lustful in high school, it was just something I did when I was bored. That was part of my operating system. What do I do with I'm bored? Oh, there's a cute girl. I should lust after her. That's just how automatic it becomes part of it where that's just what you do when you're bored and sitting in class and you don't like the teacher or whatever. It just becomes part of our system. The Bible is full of stories of people who got something dysfunctional into their operating system and you just see it growing and blossoming and blooming and then leading to destruction. You have Saul who has these warped views of God, this warped view of himself, and that just keeps causing bigger and bigger problems until he ends up falling on his own sword because he can't stand it anymore. David, a man after God's own heart, had a sexual flaw that was part of his autonomous system, his automated system. And that eventually grew and grew and it led to him killing Bathsheba's husband just so that he could score with Bathsheba. That's kind of what spiritual warfare is, is fighting against the things that we automate. It's fighting against the things that we let into our uh, operating system. So the solution is we need to take back control of our automation. We need, as discipleship, a large part of discipleship is just knowing yourself moment to moment and why you're doing what you're doing. And if there's something that you're doing that you don't know why you're doing it, that's where you need to focus your spiritual warfare on. That's where you need to focus your discipleship on, is figuring out why you're doing that. Um, 
you have to give your machine and your code regular checkups and search your heart for these configuration flaws because they creep up all on their own. They creep up out of nowhere. And so church and small group and prayer time and Sabbath, these are opportunities for us to kind of step outside of ourselves and just look at our lives and look at how our lives are going. Uh, If you're bored in your small group or if you're bored in your Bible study or if you're bored in your prayer time, you're probably focused out there somewhere. Because there is a whole web of things that you can be wrestling with in here. And, and that's, what, that's the biggest challenge that we need to do is we need to get control over the in here. We have to get control over this operating system and this code that has a tendency to operate on its own. We have to arrest and confront whatever destructive sin things are in there and try to automate good things. Try to have automatic blessings for people instead of automatic judgments, to automatically love people and to automatically look to see what is so special about them instead of trying to lust at them so automatically, you know? Just find good things to automate. That's a much more fruitful endeavor. Um, The second thing is we have a tendency to become de-centered. And what I mean by that is that we are machines, We're machines, we're embodied in these things, we're enfleshed in a very intimate way. Like, what I mean by that is that I don't even know what Dan Kent would be like if he didn't have this body. You know, if I was just like a a glowing orb, like just a ball of light, I wouldn't recognize that as Dan Kent. I don't know what that is. I have no idea. But it's only because I have this encasement and these experiences and this set of memories, that's all of the stuff in my machine, that's what kind of makes me me. And, and when God breathed that special life, that glowing orb, when he breathed that into us, he breathed it into a machine and he called it good. And it's not just good, it's amazing, this machine. And so, you know, always push back against people who say that the body is bad and the flesh is bad and the flesh is not good because, man, it's amazingly good. It's profoundly good. But at the same time, we're more than a machine. God breathed something into it. And in a weird way, in a smaller way than God, we're both imminent in the world, we're in the world, and we're also transcendent from the world. There is this ghost in the machine. And again, another great rabbit trail. I'd love to go down and to defend this. But just... For the sake of discussion here, I believe that we've all experienced the feeling of transcendence. I think that we have. If you've ever, like in the summertime, been barefoot, and you kind of look down at your feet, and then you wiggle your toes, look how far down those are. I mean, they're way down there, and I'm wiggling them. And then you say, wiggle, and then it wiggles. Look at that. I'm wiggling my toes. Even how I talk about it, I... Dan Kent, am wiggling my toes, this other thing that I own. Even how the language I use about it is that this, my toes are mine, but it's not me. I, Dan Kent, am wiggling that, which is my toes. We even talk about being transcendent. How we talk about ourselves is that same way. I think that there's something behind that that's real. I think that we do transcend this uh, machine that we are breathed into. Um, how I would look at it is this. This spirit that's been breathed into us, this deep inside place, that's our real self. That is us as we are. And that's, only we really know that and God. 
God and us, God and you, only know you in that deep inner place. But that's the most important part of you because that's the special thing that God gives into the machine. That is what God loves with this unsurpassable love. So this is where we get this unsurpassable security from. We can't get secured in any other way other than in this deep inner place. Um, This is the most real you you how you experience yourself, and you as you are known by God. Now, God doesn't want you to just be that. He doesn't want just you to be this glowing orb. And then, oh, here comes Nancy. He wants you to be able to interact with Nancy, you know? He wants you to be able to have a relationship with Nancy. So glowing orbs can't really have a relationship. So he encases us in these machines that are capable of having relationships, and he's designed these machines to be compelled to connect with other machines, to connect with other people, to connect with other sacred spirits. And so we are drawn outward, out of this inner place to the outside world so that we can have connection and belonging. But out there, it's good. We want that, and we want to belong, and we want to connect, but it's different because people don't see you as you really are deep inside. They see sort of a mediated version of yourself. You are seen by others as you are seen, not as you really are. Uh, And if you've experienced this yourself, I'm sure, where you try to explain something, how you're feeling to somebody, and you can never really communicate it perfectly. You know, you can get close, but there's always... You have to experience it to really know it, and we do our best. You know, we do our best to communicate how we're feeling and what we're experiencing, but there's always something lost there. There's a gap there because they don't see you as you really are. They see you just as you appear, just as you are seen. Um, and so we're a little less real there. The, the danger, of course, is we want to connect and we want to be accepted and we want to belong. And so we make accommodations, which are good. You know, for instance, I take a shower and I wear deodorant. Those are good things. Yeah, thank you. Yes, yes someone thanked me for that. I appreciate that, you know, the acknowledgement that I'm doing my part. Uh, hygiene, we make all sorts of hygiene things. I bet if we were the only persons on, on planet Earth, we probably wouldn't shower and wear deodorant every day. You know, why? I mean, it's just me or fix our hair or whatever. But we do these types of things so that we can connect in peaceful ways with others. Um, Now, that can become dysfunctional where we kind of do anything that other people want us to do just so that we can be accepted. And that's dysfunctional because now I'm basically living for them. I'm not even living my own life. I'm just living for whatever they want me to do. Oh, I hope they like me. I better do these things. And, And that's where it can become sort of dysfunctional. The problem is... When we go out one more level online, that temptation to live for others gets amplified exponentially. Um, the, uh, uh, the unreality becomes amplified exponentially because now not only, it's not just me as I'm seen, but it's me as I've curated myself. Uh, online, I decide what you see. If we're in person, you see whatever I, I am. You know, if I'm right here with you, you see me as you see me. But online, you don't see me as you see me. You see me whatever I give you. And so I curate myself. And so the level of unreality is greater. You're less real. The farther you go out from the inside, the less of the real you is there. And that means that the connections and the the feeding and the affirmations become less and less real as well. Um, 
What happens at that third level is we're no longer in a community at that level. We're, we're no longer speaking to a community. We're speaking to an audience. When you're online, it's not community, it's an audience. Even if it's your friends and family and brothers and sisters on Facebook, the role that they play on Facebook is not community, it's audience. They look at what you show them. Everything that you post is your stage. This is what I'm showing my audience. They don't see you as you are, like you would in a community. They see you, whatever you present, whatever you curate. The temptation then, with an audience, to accommodate and to make sacrifices and to make compromises is greater because think of the breadth and the potential size of the audience online. I mean, can you imagine if you were Elon Musk and you had 18 million people in your audience, how tempting it would be to do whatever the audience wanted to please them, to to make that big of a crowd happy? Can you imagine saying something that 18 million people retweeted, how, what the, the size of the ego boost that would be? That's the pull, is the size of the audience pulls us farther out from that center place. Uh, This is how I said it on Twitter. This is me on social media. And then this is me in real life. (laughs) Just so you know, uh, hippos and horses both run at about 30 miles per hour. So, don't you feel bad for judging hippos, huh? That's right. Okay, where was I? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the more we accommodate this portable audience that we have on our phones, the more decentered we become. Because what happens is uh, the more we start living and making decisions on what to post, on what to show people, on what to say, based on what we think that they're going to approve, now we're living more and more for them, not for ourselves, not for who we are uh, in God, but for who, whatever they want. And we just become more and more decentered. And the, the draw of the size of the audience, it can make us seek security from them. We want them to like our posts. We want them to approve what we say. And they, we want them to like our pictures of ourselves or whatever. And we can start to seek security out there. But that's sad because that's not the real self out there. That's not the real self out there. This is the same problem that a lot of addicts have, uh, alcoholics who hide their alcoholism. They will sometimes live these very great lives, but in secret they'll have alcohol problems and they'll drink and they'll get drunk and then they have this public life and they have this private life. And in the public life, people are saying, gosh, you are such a good person, I don't know how you do it. And they give them blessings, they give them compliments, but the compliments never really feed them because they know about this secret life that they have over here. It's the same way with social media. All the compliments and stuff that we get, it feels good, but it doesn't really feed us like it should because it's not really us. It's, it's a curated version of ourselves. Um, and what it does is it makes us externally oriented. It makes us live from the outside in. And we were created to live from the inside out. So what we need to do is we need to take back that center. Uh, and if we're, hey, if we're bored or if we're anxious or if we feel empty when we don't have our phone or if we don't have the internet, guess what? We're decentered. We're, we've been, de- join the club. <laughs> I've been there. My, my buddy Marcus and I, he was my roommate after college, um, this is before Wi-Fi, where you had to plug in this big cable to our laptops to get internet. We called it the umbilical cord of life. That's what we called it. You know, that's how much we loved being online. The umbilical cord of life. Is it my turn yet? Yeah, that's what, and then we would take turns and, oh, I'm online now. This is great. You know, that's, we were decentered. We were, 
we were totally decentered. Um, so centering ourselves, it means being proactive and intentional about who you are and who you want to be against the horde. The horde wants you to be something, and you have to live from that deep center place where God loves you with that unsurpassable love. And God wants you to be a certain thing, and that's where we need to live from. And so if you're feeling decentered, you have to get back to that place. You have to find the security that God offers and rest in that. Because if you're not resting in the security that God offers, you will be forced to seek security out there in the hostile, unholy crowd. And it's just a toil and it doesn't lead to anything. Um, if you're not intentional about who you want to be and who you are, the world will make you into whatever it wants you to be. It just will. And you have to cling to that center spot. Otherwise, the world will have its way with you. And that's what being centered is. And that's what the danger of being decentered is, is you lose yourself. You lose control over your robot. The final thing is uh, we can become unattended selves. And, and the point here is that our machine has a control panel inside. And we make decisions at this control panel. And right in front of the captain's chair in this control panel is the throttle. It's like the, the steering stick, okay? And what that steering stick is, is it's our attention. That's what it is. This controls our attention. And what happens, though, is we can a lot of times take our hands off of that. And we view attention as just whatever it is that's hitting our screen. And that's what, whatever we're perceiving is our attention. And we're not controlling the stick anymore. Uh, but what I would encourage you to think about is this. Think of attention not as just whatever's hitting your screen, but think of attention as a resource. Attention is a resource. Just like money. That's why we say pay attention. Because we only have so much, and it's extremely valuable. This is why... Uh, well, let me say this. this look, at, look at Proverbs, the wisdom book. Uh, and this is the first five chapters of Proverbs. Look at all the ways that the author of Proverbs is trying to get people to shake free from this passive understanding of attention and to actually grab the stick again, to take proactive control over their attention. Uh, listen, he says. Now, if you're reading the text, you're already listening, so he's meaning something deeper than just hit, letting it hit you. Be proactively listening. Turn your ear. <laughs> Don't just hear, but actually get involved. Turn your ear toward it. Get yourself into it. Uh, store up my commands. Accept my words. Make a decision. Um, uh, pay attention. Keep the words in your heart. Keep them from falling out. They'll have a life of their own if you're not constantly, proactively keeping them. Uh, give careful thought to the paths of your feet. These are all just from the first five chapters. It's very important, before you even hear the wisdom of Proverbs, that doesn't matter what the wisdom is if you're not proactive about your attention. If you're not in control of what you're attending to and if you're not really giving it your attention and mental focus, it doesn't matter how clever the Proverbs are. It's not going to do anything. It's only when you're proactively attending and you've got control of your attention that you can then process these things in any meaningful way. There's a reason why the Apostle Paul says that we have to take every thought captive because if we're cognitively passive and we're just letting the world wash over us, these thoughts will just take on a life of their own and they will do all sorts of things that we have no idea that they will do. We will just be shaped by them instead of using them to shape ourselves in the way that we want. We will end up being shaped in ways that we had no idea we were going to be shaped. We have to view attention as a resource. We have to. This is why so many people are trying to get your attention. 
This is why everybody's raising awareness for things. Because they know that if they can get some of your attention, they could get some of your control. They can get some of your say-so. And that's why people are trying to get your attention so, so uh, aggressively. Social media is largely about that, is trying to get people's attention. And, which is fine, because some things we should have our attention uh, sent to. But it can be very manipulative, too. David Morrow, uh, two weeks ago, talked about the incredible links that Facebook and social media goes through to try to control our attention. He talked about how they try to maintain us in what they call the zone, which is this cognitively passive state where we just watch whatever hits the social media feed. That's the zone. It's like a slot machine. We have no idea what any of these symbols mean, but we can't stop playing. I don't even know if I won. The only time I know if I've won anything is if some coins fall out. Oh, okay, that must be, this must be a win. A duck, a chicken, and a turtle. That's a win, I guess. All right, good. And, but I'm, that's the goal. Is to just don't even know why we're doing it, but we get some type of weird reward, and we're not cognitively active. We're cognitively passive. We're numb brains. That's what they want. They want numb brains floating down these algorithmic content streams. I like that. Numb brains floating gently down algorithmic content streams, just kind of floating, just seeing whatever Facebook or Twitter wants us to see, just taking it in. Oh, yeah, this is nice. And it's shaping us, though. It's making us into something we might not want to be. The, the goal here, the, the, the tactic is that we have to take our attention back. We have to stop just giving our attention to whoever wants it. We need to invest our attention because attention is a resource just like money. In fact, I would say attention is a more valuable resource than money because attention, that's the stick that we use to become whoever it is we're going to become. And that's what shapes and orients our entire life is what we invest our attention into. And so we need to look at it. We don't just want to occupy our attention like, I'm bored, what should I watch? That's just occupying my attention. And that's fine too, uh, but as long as we're conscientious about it. But we need to be investing our uh, attention more. Attention should be contemplated. It should be planned out. It should be budgeted just like money because it's more valuable than money. And we should be budgeting it and planning it out. Attention shouldn't just be given. It should be earned. You know, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't ever give attention to people who don't give us anything back, because we should. We should give attention to people who can't give us anything back. But we should do that conscientiously, not mindlessly. Um, I, when I write these sermons, um, this is what motivates me more than anything else. I think of you driving all the way over here, parking, coming in, getting dressed, all that kind of stuff, all the work you have to do to get here, and you're going to invest your attention in whatever I have to offer. And that, and then parishioners also, they're going to download this and take their attention and invest it in whatever it is I have to offer. That motivates me more than anything else because I think that that's very sacred. The attention that you're giving to me, I consider that very sacred. And, and it's not giving it to me, it's giving it to God. And I'm just the vehicle that will hopefully give you a return on that. That's how I view it. I view it as that sacred. And I hope that you view it as that sacred also. Um, in close, I want to just summarize these three tactics. And I want to start where I stopped, which is attention. Because we start with attention because this is where you have the most leverage. This is where you have the most control. You should always know what you're spending your attention on. Don't let the bozos just steal your attention without you knowing it. That's what you don't want. 
You always want to know what you're giving your attention to. This doesn't mean that you always have to be reading a book or taking a class or anything like that. I mean, vegging out is very good. <laughs> you should veg out. You can't always be learning. You can't always be investing your attention. Sometimes you just need to veg out. And that's great. Play video games for five hours. That's awesome, as long as you're doing that conscientiously. And you can do that with joy and without guilt. It's just when we mindlessly do that where we don't even know why we're doing it, that's where it's destructive. Um, what I would recommend is to do an attention plan, okay? In the same way that you plan out your schedule Monday through Friday, this is what I have these hours, and I have this to-do list, where could I put these tasks in my schedule? Also do an attention plan. What do I need to focus my attention on during this hour? What do I need to focus my attention on, on during this hour? I mean, this is a resource. You should treat it like a resource. And I did this this last week. I had an attention plan. And um, I had mixed results, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, I had it all planned out, what I was going to focus on, and this is what I was focusing on, but this is what I actually gave my attention on. And then sometimes my attention went over here, and then, oh, yeah, I have an attention plan. Okay, here it is. All right. Oh, look at the bird. Wow. And I just all over the place. <sighs> But it's my first week, though, okay? It's my first week trying this attention plan. But I think, I want you to try it, too, because I think that there's something to this, planning out our attention. And I think together we can maybe work this out and figure something out together. So I encourage you to try it. Um, the second thing is we need to stay centered. We have to live from the inside out. There's this urge to please this online audience or even the people in our surroundings. That means that we're being decentered. Um, we can't let the horde overthrow who we are in Christ and who we want to be. We have to be uh, intentional about, uh, about that. Greg has a book called Present Perfect. We talked about this on the podcast a couple weeks ago, and I'm like, man, this is a good book for the sermon I'm working on. So I started reading it. And what Present Perfect is about is it's, it's this, this truth that God is with us all the time. And Jesus is right there with us. And, and Greg says that we need to start living as if Jesus is right there. And this is really weird for me because I, theologically I know that's true, but actually I, I don't feel like that's real. I, I feel like Jesus is somebody I'll hang out with in heaven later on. I don't really think of Jesus as being right here, even if theologically I think he is. So I'm like, all right, Greg, I'll try this. And so I started living as if Jesus is right with me. In the truck with me, we're listening to the Twins game together. You know, uh, he also thinks we need more pitching. But anyway, that's a second <laughs> separate issue. We're at Starbucks together. And you know what I found out? By, by really thinking that Jesus is at the table with me as I'm sipping my latte, I'm much less likely to judge others if Jesus is right there. Isn't that weird? And Jesus is there, so I should be less likely to judge others anyway. But unless I consciously say, you know what, he's right there, sometimes that doesn't help theologically to know he's there. I have to actually imagine him being there. This is very similar to when we're driving on the freeway together. You know, when all of us, we go home, we're on the freeway, and I'm, it's 60 miles per hour is the speed limit. I'm going 65, 68, but some bozo behind me wants to go 72, you know? And they're like right here on my back, you know? And I'm just like, come on, I'm going 68 already. I mean, can't you just go to 68 instead of 72? But no, he can't. So he's going to go all the way around me and then speed up. And now he's going 72. He's just right in front of me, you know? And then like nine more cars join this jostling uh, show. And we're all kind of jostling for the good spot. Now we're all going like 75, right? And then a cop car merges on. <laughs> then the police car merges on. Then everybody's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And they slow down. No, go ahead, go ahead, you know? And, <laughs> 
And that's, that's what it's like living with Jesus right there. And not that, you know, not that Jesus is like the authority who's going to try to, you know, hit you with the rules. In fact, he's the one who's saying, hey, step on it. You know, if you read the Gospels, Jesus is more like to say, hey, can we speed it up a little bit? You know, he doesn't really care about the rules like that. But what he does care about is he cares about you being the best version of yourself. He cares about you being Christ-like. And by having Jesus right there in the same way when the cop car merges on, it totally reorients how you view yourself and others. And so I highly recommend considering that. The final thing is we need to live intentionally. Because the destructive bugs and the sinful automation in us, that just happens on its own. I didn't have to sit and plan to be addicted to sugar. (laughs) That sweet problem just happened all on its own, you know? But being good and loving, that doesn't necessarily happen on its own. A lot of times, that type of stuff, we need to be more intentional about. Uh, And so discipleship really is about regular reflection on who you are and who you are trying to be. Uh, Focus on your operating system. Uh, You know, books and sermons and podcasts, they can give you really good information. They can be really profound even. But they can't really do anything to that deeper, most intimate part of you. There's no book or insight about you because no one really sees that you deep inside other than you and God. And so you have to be responsible. At some point, the the books and the podcasts and the sermons stop helping you and you just have to wrestle with who you are on your own. You have to become a PhD about yourself because nobody else has access to that other than you and God. And living intentionally is trying to get into that deep, unique place of you and trying to figure out how it's operating. Um, And so if you're bored in small groups, again, it probably means that you're not looking at yourself deep enough. Um, Don't let the world program your machine. I mean, it's going to, unfortunately. But as much as possible, fight back against that. Try to program yourself on your own uh, based on how God wants you to be programmed. None of these three things... It's not like you start these things and tomorrow you're going to be a new person. These are all progressive, eventual types of things. But I believe that these are very valuable tactics that in the long run will make you more and more who God and you want you to be and less and less what the world wants you to be. It will keep you autonomous and keep you from becoming automatons. This is basically what spiritual warfare looks like in day-to-day life. I believe that. Um... At this point, I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come forward. If you have any prayer requests, especially about any of these things, please come forward. They'd love to pray with you. And if you would like to start a journey of your own of living intentionally like this, and you would like kind of a prayer boost from the prayer team, I encourage you to come forward and talk to them about that. In the meantime, thank you so much for giving me some of your sacred attention, and have a blessed week. Thanks, everybody.